you would turn back with me in your copies of God's Word, our text, as I've already mentioned, is Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 to 29. And before we take up these verses, I want to raise a series of questions that we won't really answer until the end of our time together this evening. And we can't answer them because in many ways the text, only at its conclusion, brings us brings us those answers. The question, first of all, has to be for you and for me. It's a very practical one. It's, it's why is it that so many misunderstand Christ? Why is it that so many misunderstand the gospel, though they've heard it so many times? And a related question, a crucial question, is why is it that, that for so many, though they've sat under the gospel... With regard to fundamentals, they're so quickly led away to error. Why does that happen? And those questions come to us because, of course, the situation in Galatia is precisely that. You you have men who have misunderstood Christ. You have men and you have women who've been led away into errors on fundamental principles of the gospel. And so why does that happen? Our text this evening gives us an answer to those questions, but it doesn't give us an answer to those questions in isolation from what's gone before. You see, for us to get really the answers that we're looking for, we need to remember the broader argument the Apostle is making. You remember that argument begins in verse 6. After castigating the Galatians for their falling into these errors, he begins to make an argument based, first of all, on Abraham's own experience. And so in verses 6 to 9, the apostle makes a very basic argument, and that is that that Abraham, Abraham only apprehended the righteousness that he enjoyed through faith. And a like argument that comes as a corollary is that those then who are possessed of like faith partake of the same benefit or blessing. In other words, since Abraham received justification by grace through faith alone, those who are possessed of like faith receive that self-same blessing. And they are then, the apostle tells us, counted children of Abraham. That's verses 6 to 9. But then you come to verses 10 to 14. And really, in this point, the apostle's anticipating an argument. And the argument is... Well, how then is it that these ones who are possessed of like faith can come out from under the curse of the law to receive Abraham's blessing? Is it necessary that they're circumcised? Is it their circumcision and their keeping of the ceremonial code that's the ground of their enjoyment? And here the apostle is very clear. Only in a saving faith does one enjoy the benefits or blessings of Christ. And the only way a man comes out from the curse of the law is by having Christ, who was made that curse, the object of their faith. That's the only answer. The only way out from under that curse, says the apostle, is by entrusting yourself to the one who has made a curse for all who would look to him. The apostle then, as we saw last week, verses 15 to 18, continues that self-same argument. But he does it thus, he says, Not only is it the case that this was Abraham's experience, but it must be the experience of all afterward. 
Because Abraham enjoyed these things in a covenant that could not be disannulled. No, not even by the giving of the law. The law could not, could not remove from those who are possessed of saving faith the benefit they enjoyed through Christ. But our text this evening, starting in verse 19, anticipates very loudly, very explicitly, another objection. And that objection is, well, why then the law? Why then the law? If it couldn't disannul the covenant made before, and if, if, as the Judaizers were claiming and Paul was refuting, that it couldn't perfect either the believer, then why is the law there? What purpose does it serve? And the apostle is very clear, isn't he? I'll be very direct. As you look at verse 24, the answer is given to us clearly. It was given so as to be our schoolmaster, to drive us to Christ. Now the apostle here is not presenting for us a systematic and exhaustive use of the law of God. We need to keep that in mind. But what he is saying here, in terms of our justification, the law was given for a very specific purpose, and it was to be, as it were, our tutor and our guide to lead us to Christ. That's how the apostle answers this objection. And so, friend, I want us to take up this theme briefly this evening, that this schoolmaster, the law, and its rigor is to drive us to Christ. Or you could put it this way, the rigor of the law is to drive us to Christ. And I want us to consider that under three headings, just as they come to us in our text. I want us to consider, first of all, the rigor of that law. I want us also then to consider its remit and to close with the apostle's statements about its retirement. And so we begin here, first of all, with this rigor. I want you to notice in verse 19, the apostle begins by saying this, that it was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. And as you hold that statement in conjunction with what follows, you understand what the apostle is saying. He is saying it was added for transgressions so as to expose them. The idea is is that here the law will function as a schoolmaster, as something that will educate us, clarify for us our own sin. And of course, the apostle is clear about this in Romans 3. By the law is the knowledge of sin. The law has an instrumental purpose. It comes to man, says the apostle, and it was given in the age before so that men would see as they've never seen before the sinfulness of sin. And friends, it's at this point that I need to remind you what kind or aspect of the law we're thinking about here. You see, the law that the apostle here is referring to is that which, of course, was given at Sinai. But he's thinking of the law in a very specific way. And he's demonstrated the kind of law or the form in which this law comes to us already. I want you to notice, as you look just through Galatians 3, the law that the apostle is dealing with and the form in which it comes to us, that form that he's addressing here, is that of the covenant of works. What do I mean? If you look at verse 8 of of Galatians 3, he says this. He says that it is justification that's primarily in view, that that God would justify the heathen through faith. As you then go to verses 11 and 12, he reiterates the kind of law that's in view. 
It's that law that says, here, the man that doeth them shall live in them. In other words, the law the apostle is referring to, or the form in which the law comes to man as the apostle is addressing, is that law as it breathes out this, this simple statement, do this and live. That's the consideration of the law that we have in our view this evening. He's not here referring to the use of the law as it's a guide to the believer. He's not even referring to the use of the law as it restrains the wicked. He is speaking about the law as it comes to men, as it came to Adam in the garden with these words. Do this and live. And if you fail, expect only certain death. But I want you to notice the apostle says this. He says here that it would be there in verse 19, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. It was added for transgressions till the seed should come. And the question we have to ask is what really are we looking at here? And friend, there have been many who have divided the apostles' consideration into the three forms of the law that we understand in the Old Testament. Namely, the moral law, what we call the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, which pertain to the worship of God in the Old Covenant, and the civil law, those judicial codes that were given to the nation-state of Israel. And many commentators turn around of late and say that the apostle here is addressing only the ceremonial. But as you look at Galatians 3, the apostle is not dealing just with one of those three aspects of the law. He is dealing with the whole, and he's dealing with it as it's under its old covenant administration. Briefly, friend, what that means is this. The apostle is not divesting the old covenant of any grace, but he's reminding us of the fact that the old covenant administration in its entirety, in its entirety, as the apostle says in Hebrews 10, had a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things. The old covenant administration possessed grace, but if I can put it to you this way, What the apostle emphasizes here and what he will do in Hebrews is he reminds the church that in the old covenant, conviction, guilt, and condemnation were clearer than were the gospel. The gospel was there, but it was the condemning power of the law that was most clear. And so the apostle is dealing with that whole old covenant administration, especially in this case, friend, as it points to us the rigor of that law as it reminds men of the condemnation that that law breathes when it comes to men in that form of the covenant of works. And friend, I want you to notice that 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 rigor abides. The apostle puts it this way in in Romans 7. He found that rigor himself in that he knew the law was ordained to life, but he found it to be death. As he contemplated the law of God, he felt in this form it coming to him so clearly a messenger of condemnation, one that would expose his guilt before a holy God. And beloved, in this text, the apostle tells us clearly that this sense, the form in which this law is considered, it was given, as he says in verse 22, to conclude all under sin. Such is the rigor of this law that friend the most pious among men, the the most virtuous among men, are condemned thereby. 
The law was given, the apostle says then, to expose and to humble men. To set before them clearly their own guilt and condemnation. I want you to notice that whenever the apostle says, as he does here in this text, that it was added for transgressions, he's not saying that the law did not pre-exist, Sinai. In fact, in Romans 5, he's very clear, isn't he? He says, before the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Meaning that there was the law, and the law was given in the very garden, and con created with Adam. That law always existed, otherwise there could be no sin, says the apostle. But it was promulgated or published in Sinai for a very particular reason. You see, that law was already ingrained in the hearts of men. And and even the fall couldn't utterly eradicate it. But here's what happened in the fall. Men lost its clarity. No, the law was not entirely removed. Adam didn't have a lobotomy when he fell. But the law was obscured because of man's inbred darkness. And so at Sinai, at Sinai, the apostle says, this law was given so that so very clearly men would see their guilt. Yes, they had something of that law shadow resting in their own breasts, but this law given at Sinai was to remind them that this law that had been transgressed is exceeding broad, and this law that God had given is altogether righteous, and this law is the very law that they have transgressed. At Sinai, this is most, most made clear to sinners. And so, friend, the apostle says here that when this law is read, given for our help, he says it leads men to the conclusion, when read rightly, that all are therein condemned. The Apostle in Romans 7 again puts it so poignantly. The right reading of this law turns the law from being the expected savior to being man's executioner. A right reading and appropriation of the rigor of this law and all of its condemning power turns the self-righteous from viewing the law as a code by which to earn life and as being, in fact, their own sentence of death. That's what the law is supposed to do, says the apostle. And so, friend, our first question as we think of the law's rigor is, I think, a very obvious one, and that is, have we read the law aright in this sense? Do we know, the apostle says here, we ought to know? Do we know that this law that is exceeding broad Indeed, as it were, hunts out the very recesses of our own hearts to expose sin that the world couldn't see and that we cover even from our own eyes. It was added for transgression, says the apostle. And so its right right use, he says, should lead us to see that in all of its rigor, none thereby are justified. Do we have an experiential knowledge of this? I want you to notice in verse 24, the apostle continues his argument. He comes to the remit, or if you like, the command that's given to the law itself. He says, its calling is to be our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. What's so staggering about this is, the apostle here understands the law given at Sinai 
to be intentionally, intentionally given for a redemptive purpose. The law was intentionally given at Sinai to be the schoolmaster of souls, to draw them to the Savior. There's so much that we could say about that point, but I want you to notice if you go to verse 19, he says that this law was ordained in, a hand of, in the hand of a mediator. And many, I think, through the more recently at least, have, have thought that here Moses is primarily in view. But if you remember what the apostle has just said, that the law was intentionally given for a redemptive function, then with the ancient church and even many of the reformers, it's Christ who stands here as the mediator. And must be. I want you to notice, you go just a few lines before, the apostle speaks here about the covenant that Abraham enjoyed being ratified or confirmed in Christ. The covenant that Abraham enjoyed justification through was ratified in Christ. And so we already have this idea that all of God's redemptive purposes are in his Son. And then he comes to us and says, the law was given for a redemptive purpose. And then he cites a mediator. What really does this do for the apostle's argument? I think Calvin very helpfully puts it to us this way. By by drawing our attention to Christ, in this moment, the apostle says thus. He says, he who is the foundation of the covenant of grace held also the highest rank in the giving of the law. You see what this does, beloved? It reminds us that the giving of the law at Sinai was not as the Judaizers were treating it, as an instrument to augment grace. It was given by Christ for a redemptive purpose. It was given, if you like, as an instrument of free grace. And as the apostle prosecutes his argument in this third chapter, that purpose was to draw men to a closing saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea then, friend, here is that the rigor, the rigor of the law as in view in our text, was given even commissioned to do this work. It's a staggering staggering claim. It has vast theological significance. But I want you to notice this. Beloved, if we take what the apostle is saying here and apply it very practically to ourselves, he is saying that the breathings out of this law and the right understanding of its threatenings should lead men to basic conclusions. The first conclusion is this, and that is that I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. If it's concluded all under sin, then the only hope of redemption must be found in God. In other words, the law comes to practically drive the man, drive the man to see the necessity of divine intervention. To comply with these words, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. To see that when God says that only God have said that. That's what the apostle is saying. That's the function of the law. That was its commissioning to drive men to this point. 
Friend, if you think about it this way, I think we're even perhaps more helped. A right understanding of the law as the apostle is giving it to us in our text will lead men and women to this very basic conclusion that if they are for a moment, if they are for a moment divested of the pardon and righteousness that they have in Christ, they stand under infinite condemnation. Notwithstanding all of their religious experiences before, notwithstanding all of the duties and good things that they have performed, if for a moment they stand outside of Christ, the law will come and of necessity proclaim them condemned. Beloved, that's the function of the law in this sense of driving us to Christ. To even put it perhaps more practically, friend, if I, if you were, if you were on a ladder and you thought you were a foot off the ground, your grip would probably be rather loose. But if I came to you and reminded you, in fact, that you're 100 feet off the ground, how does your grip change? Friend, the law comes and it says, you have no hope. No hope, no ground to stand on outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the apostle says, this makes men come to him. This drives men to the Savior because it drives them out of themselves. They begin to grip the ladder, fully aware that they stand over an abyss that their sins have merited for them. That, says the apostle, is the remit of this law. And for you and I, the question we have to ask is, do we know experientially that effect? Do we know what it is to be divested as we think of the rigor of the law of any self-confidence? Do we know what it is to find ourselves driven Genuinely driven to Christ as our only refuge. And I'm not speaking about a single experience. Beloved, this has to be recapitulated in your life day and daily. As soon as you and I grow self-confident, the apostle would say, you've not listened well. Or you've forgotten the cries of your old school master. that says you must go to Christ for all. And always. And so friend, all self-reliance that's found in your breast and in mine bespeaks men and women who have not learned the lesson well. But I want us to close by looking at the retirement of this law. In the text before us, he says, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Now, friend, as I've said to you already, he is thinking here broadly about the Old Testament administration as it's considered in this sense, as it is throughout the New Testament, especially as it breathes out more clearly the rigor and the condemning power of the law. Again, he's not denying that grace is to be found among the patriarchs. He's not denying that there was not grace in the law. In fact, he's already told us the law was given by the hand of Christ. 
But what he is saying here is that that schoolmaster that breathed out condemnation, that was so clear in the Old Covenant and still so very clear when men confront the law without Christ, he says that, that schoolmaster is retired when men are driven to Christ. They are no longer under a schoolmaster. They are children of God by faith who have matured. But then here's the, here's the remarkable thing. And this is what brings us back to verse 6. This is the conclusion of the broader argument the apostle has been making and that we've been thinking about for the better part of two months. He goes back to the motif of Abraham's seed. I want you to notice that. He says, those who have left this schoolmaster, the condemning power of the law, and have rightly heard it so as to be driven to Christ, he says, these ones here, these ones are Abraham's seed. Whether Jew or Gentile. Whether Jew or Gentile. These ones are Abraham's seed and therefore partakers of the same blessing and benefit. As he says here, heirs according to the promise. It's the conclusion of the argument of verse 6. What is it that makes men enjoy the self-same blessing that Abraham had? It is by a faith in Christ that has been driven to him through the condemning power of the law, has been driven to him as Christ presents himself clothed in the gospel as the one upon whom the curse had exhausted itself so that men might go free. That's what the apostle says. Whether Jew or Gentile, that is sufficient and nothing could be added to that work. But there's something powerful in this text that I think we often overlook. You see, as you look at verse 28, especially the last line. The apostle says, ye are all one in Christ Jesus. He goes back to a theme I know we've hinted at before, but he goes back to the idea of union with Christ. But then he reiterates that in a subtle but also important way in verse 29. He says, if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed. A friend, just roll back in your mind for a moment what we considered last week. In verse 16, the apostle says this, the promise, sorry, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to thy seed, which is Christ. The apostle has already made the rhetorical point and emphasized it with incredible, with incredible vigor that the one seed in view was a singular seed. He belabored the point. And then at the end of this text, he says, after telling us that seed is Christ, that the believers are that seed. What is he saying? Well, friend, he concludes by saying this. That the law, its condemning power is retired when men are united to Christ to become his body when they are so closely united to Christ that they could be called Abraham's seed, that they could be called those in Christ. See, friend, we often overlook union with Christ, but the apostles are so very clear. Everything, every benefit that we can expect from the hand of God must be because we are found in Him. The schoolmaster, in other words, is not retired. 
until men are so found in Christ. And so I want us to return to the question I asked at the beginning of our time this evening. Why do men misunderstand the gospel? Why is Christ so widely misunderstood? Why are there heresies like that in the church of Galatia? The apostle would say that fundamentally they've not misunderstood the gospel. In a very fundamental way, he traces the Judaizing heresy back to a misunderstanding of the law. It is the law that was first misunderstood. When men would boast in their own righteousness, it is not because they've misunderstood the gospel. They've not heard from the schoolmaster. All right. Friend, if we really grasp this, then for you and for me, there's many, many practical implications. You see, in this text, you and I are reminded that men must be driven from themselves before, in fact, they're driven to Christ. Until men are driven out of themselves, they will remain in themselves. The schoolmaster, as it were, with a whip in hand, is to drive them to Christ. And so the text before us urges us not to employ the schoolmaster ourselves. That is, not to use the law in such a way as to lead us to despair, that there is even no help in God. Some have misused the law thinking that the law is where the remedy is to be found. No, the law was never pointing to itself. In its promulgation at Sinai, it was, says the apostle, given with the intention to point men to Christ. And so, friend, this is a helpful corrective to us. You and I are not called to wallow in a sense of guilt if we've run to Christ. Even the law itself, says the apostle, would point you elsewhere. Even the law given at Sinai would point you to Christ. But on the other hand, neither is the law to be ignored. You see, friend, this is also a point at which so many of us, I think, fall. The apostle would tell us not to mute or to ignore the schoolmaster or encourage others to do so. You see, when the rigor of the law comes to the sinner, it's right for him to hear it clearly. And even when the believer thinks about the rigor of the law, even though he is freed from the condemnation absolutely, it's right for the believer to remember that his sins are still so heinous in the sight of God, and that without Christ, he could not stand on his own. It's right for the believer to use the law in that regard as well. And so, friend, really the implication from all of this is that the apostle would remind us a right use of the law in this sense, a right use of its rigor, a right hearing of the schoolmaster as he considers him in this text will drive us out of ourselves into Christ. 
And so, friend, that is the ultimate question. The ultimate question of the entire epistle of the Galatians and beyond is have you been so driven? Have you concluded that it must be as God says that it is? Thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help.